If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be intriguingly dynamic, and here's why. In this episode, we find some answers to how can scene structure help us pace our games better? And what tips from the life of a filmmaker turned GM can we use to improve our games? And what is ready to roll and why is it so damn good? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Travis. And I'm his brother, Jordan. So today we're talking about pacing. Right. So you ever hit this particular wall? The party just finished negotiating the terms of their next quest, and now they're standing around in the room, and as they all begin to entertain themselves by making small talk with a guard, you realize that they've now got to get to the mountaintop. As you're figuring out where they could go next, you're also trying to play out Jard the Guard, (laughs) who the party is now inviting on the quest, and you panic. You say yes, and you smash cut to the stables? I don't know. They need horses, right? Yeah, (laughs) I want to know a little bit more about Jard the Guard. And that's the problem. He's not fleshed out. (laughs) Oh, the pacing. Don't focus on Jard. Yeah. Ah, and like, this is all well and good from a at-home, you can fumble, you can mess up, you don't have a lot on the line in terms of stakes. But there are other people that have honed this into a fine craft. Absolutely. I mean, imagine if you're not just pacing things for your group, but for a large audience of your high production actual play video series. You're going to have to get good real quick. And not just like, you think about the kind of stuff that could potentially be on your shoulders. Sets. Every time you mention a set, a new place, you're thinking, oh, okay. That's just now a new thing in the world. But in the case of some people's experience, it means that there is a new set that actually has to be built and created and crafted by craftspeople. (laughs) And if you describe a weapon, holy shit, that weapon now has to be built? Well, that's kind of in the vein of our guest today. Right. So she's the game master for the incredible actual play YouTube series Ready to Roll which was created by a Filthy Lot Productions. That's a content creation studio in Vancouver, BC, packed with professionals from the film industry. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this project later, but she's killing it as the DM. Yeah, we tend to resonate with fine folks that have a lot of varied background experience that, uh, you know, for us, this has always helped us develop really rich and interesting worlds. And I think this is uh, one of those things that we have in common with the very multi-talented and diverse experience that Roz brings to the table. Like publishing scientific papers in microbiology and biotechnology. She's been a research assistant studying video games for rehabilitation. She's produced several short films and series. From screenwriting and post-production for Netflix and Disney, like, there's a lot of film experience there, too. And she even plays the French horn. And yes, this is going to come (laughs) up in our conversation around pacing. So stick around for that. This is kind of a wonderful mix of science and storytelling and, and movies and all of the cool things that we really love And that's why we're super excited to talk to Roz Young today. Thank you very much for joining us, Roz. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for inviting me. What a delight. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We asked you to join us to talk about pacing. But before we get into all the ways that we can be good at it, can you remember ever struggling with it in a game? Or did your experience negate that right out of the gate? Were you always good at it? Just born with it. Well, I think a little bit because of my experience, I think naturally in a in an environment that leans itself towards encouraging strong pacing. But I've definitely been in games where I feel 
you know, we're going in circles or one character is getting their moment, but everyone else is bored. Those times where you can tell that the, the feel of the game has turned into something that, you know, wasn't what I'd intended, wasn't what I know my players and I had talked about is what we would feel like we want in a game. And it does seem to be that it derails for a bunch of reasons, but in general, getting back on track when you start to lose people gets a little bit tricky. And it all depends, again, on the very beginning thing of talking to your players about what do you guys want to achieve? Like, what's the feel of a day? What does good look like when you have a session and at the end of it that you're super jazzed or you're super pumped about it and you go out and the first thing that you do is tell everybody who will even stare at you for a second everything that happened in your last game. <laughs> so if like, what are you going for with your team? And when you guys agree to something that feels good, I've been in moments where I was like, oh, I know this isn't what, what we wanted. People are, are not feeling it. They're confused. And my biggest one is that I love puzzles. <laughs> I love puzzles a lot. <laughs> and my player groups vary. I just know that sometimes you have to adjust the way that you know I would like a scene or a moment to go because I know what, what's happening on the other end. And that one is probably my biggest one. And I always have a way out with the puzzle because I'll have thought it was straightforward or that I laid all these clues out and I'll just be patting myself on the back about how good that's going to go. <laughs> and then that trap will trigger and then there'll be that piece of information they're going to remember from two weeks ago. Uh, and instead it's always give, give yourself an out because they're going to be confused and they're going to get cranky and then, and then they're gone. Their chance to role play is also gone too because they're they're pulled out of the moment. And then the DM has to take on the role of the many crickets in the room <laughs> that are just waiting for people to. All right, you can do it. Yep. <laughs> so you're always trying to uh, sneak in puzzles to your games, is what you're saying. That's that's Roz's oh, yeah. <laughs> goal. If I could sneak a puzzle in every day and not have them catch on and hate me forever, I think that would be a, a dream. But I also understand that there's the what the characters can be capable of and then what your players are capable of and and learning the hard way put your foot in your mouth and accidentally give the dyslexic player the math puzzle and they get really stressed out and then they're not having fun either and you're like i could learn that right and like you said actually talking to your players that advice never gets old <laughs> get on the same page before you start playing and wonderful things will happen yeah and it's okay to check in while you go too I feel like we missed a, a real golden opportunity because Jordan and I stumbled through a series of episodes on puzzles. So we're going to have to to retcon those episodes and bring you back for some more puzzles. But to I think to kind of dive into the whole reason we're here is to really talk about what you've already kind of alluded to, which is that pacing and kind of keeping people on their toes and engaged and and feeling the energy in the space. And we'll do that in the Strategy Stateroom. This is the Strategy Stateroom, where inventive and cunning tactics are crafted for when they're needed most. Well, Roz, when we originally talked to you about pacing to simplify what you were saying the most you kind of had two steps that you gave us which was thinking acts and thinking scenes and i think we can yeah start broadly and talk about that thinking and acts can you tell us what you mean by that and how it helps you to pace your games yeah i think in acts because i have a background in screenwriting and when you first learn to screenwrite and start analyzing stories particularly stories in film and television. Um, but when you start to work on looking at things through that, that lens, you see there's a natural flow to a story. So stories have beginning, middles, and ends. But then they have these other key moments that an act will be known for. So the act one of a movie needs to set up and, and do some work for your story that sets up this progress that's a really natural journey. And everybody's familiar with the hero's journey and Star Wars is the good example but there's other act structures out there. And I think when you start by thinking in acts, when you start writing what you have planned for your one shot or your campaign, you'll naturally build in a sense of pace because you will have a destination in mind that hits these other milestones along the way. So it's not just the beginning where we're gonna have an intro 
and we meet in the tavern and then the end where we have a big bad boss fight or some other reveal of information and towards a conclusion but you build in some progression points along the way that everybody who's dming you're naturally doing this probably you're setting yourself up for these milestones but you can use some of this act structure from film to help guide you to those milestones so one of the really good ones is at the end of act two it's this all is lost moment and so you want your players to have a time where they don't think they're going to be able to succeed because that makes the succession at the end like the huge moment where you get to cheer and hopefully not tpk and everybody dies <laughs> but you know you're headed towards this moment it's it's a just an innate human nature that we want to be scared and nervous and the anxiety builds and all of that leads towards this epic heroic moment if that's what you think your players are going for maybe you're running an evil campaign and you know they're going to kill all these people and it's going to be really dark but even in that case they have to have their moment to you know accomplish this task that you set them out on at the beginning of the story yeah well yeah. that's one of my favorite beats in storytelling actually is that uh all is lost moment and i think well, it, it works really well in movies and TV, but I'm curious from your perspective, it's kind of tricky sometimes to set up. Do you have any like specific advice on how to set up that moment? I think it's finding the time that the players also do that for you. So that moment that they said they'd never split up and they do. And then you can spring something on them that they knew that they shouldn't do this and they made that choice for whatever reason they had to balance some scenarios and they decided uh, to go with this way over this way and then you challenge them and finding the players especially towards those moments who were um, if they're up for it maybe they've been quieter maybe they haven't participated or you haven't touched on their backstory yet then you can pull all those moments into something where in combat, you have a really good chance because you're probably going to be able to drop somebody and then maybe pull in some information and give them a juicy role play moment. And then some character beat is going to have to pull them. And the players have to make that choice because the next step in the act structure, after you've gone through this all is lost moment, the road home is preceded by some sort of decision, a character change. And so you're waiting for your players to go on that journey and you can try to help manufacture it with them, but there's usually a player somewhere in there who's got something juicy that you could give them a moment. And then you can use that with your pacing tips to, you know, start things moving faster, increase the pressure on them. They could head towards something now that is get everybody back together and suddenly you're on this journey that's going to feel really epic all together again. Do you have any kind of go-tos that, you know, the old handy tricks that you rely on to increase pressure for your players? I think that's pretty key to trying to get towards that all is lost moment without overwhelming completely, because there is kind of a balance when you're DMing, right? It's not like you can tell the story exactly how you want to tell it. You have to keep that energy at the right place. Yeah, sometimes it's it's really tricky because you have to let them have a moment where they don't they can't rely on just naturally rolling okay to get by. It's, you know, this role isn't enough to succeed. And the best super sneaky DM tip is when they say something that they think is important or they're having a, a moment, but you normally, they don't know why, but you just roll. Just <laughs> roll. Don't tell them what you're rolling for. Don't tell them the outcome. Don't tell them why. And their anxiety levels will shoot up. They'll all get... <laughs> really nervous and they'll be like what's happening what's going on have we made a change did something change in the game and that will cause them to all start thinking really fast um also it's fun but <laughs> when you're doing it you'll see you'll see the players will they'll immediately all come back to you so if you're starting to lose them they notice when you roll all the time <laughs> you're evil ross <laughs> <laughs> that is great a little attention grabber um but but a big problem there is the risky part of i'll I'll make it so your your stuff isn't going according to what they might have planned or their roles are not succeeding and they might start to get frustrated. And so you have to still give them something else, which is usually the way out. Um, but they have to feel like they earned it or it won't feel good. We recently had a Discord folk who called us out uh, very playfully on the fact that we've talked about 
uh, five act structures and seven act structures and eight act structures. And they, they said, you guys figure your shit out, decide on one, so which, that one, we of can, which one of these works, which is <laughs> canon. Um, but obviously, as you kind of pointed out, there's lots of different ways to structure your story. Do you have any one of those those structures, like the three, five, seven, that you find work better for different types of games or different sections of your game? I think I tend to follow it in triples. My favorite general story trend is laugh, cry, cheer. It's just always this sort of motion that I'm going through. I'm a pretty whimsical DM. I'm really about the rule of fun. I like to have a good time at my table. But I'm not going to have a cheer moment if we don't have a stressful, all is lost cry moment. So we don't always literally cry, but we do get to the point where there is concern that, you know, maybe the players won't make it or they won't achieve their quest or they lose something along the way. And whether that's an item they've collected or a pet they tried to keep, uh, those sorts of things that you can, can incorporate into the story makes makes that cheer moment at the end that much stronger. So I'll often build things in a simple kind of three-act structure pattern all along the way. And then that one is part of a larger introduction, middle, end. And then part of an even larger introduction, middle, end. And all of those things at the end of those acts, they're act breaks that should change the story in another direction. So if we get to the end of a mini plot in the town, then you know maybe suddenly the information that they had leads them on a totally different path or they they realize they've been misled and now they want to go back to another part of the story but it has to follow into another one of these patterns television that's in like a like a one hour procedural type which is a good model tends to do a five act structure which is another great option and i think it just depends on sometimes it's how many extra things you and other npcs and characters you're building into your story how many other subplots are there that you still need to resolve. Otherwise that also feels really unsatisfying if there's just NPCs and side quests everywhere and they never get a chance to get resolution. You know, they never they never have um, a moment where they can feel that they've accomplished something. Then that also starts to feel, and then you notice you lose your players because they, they're not gonna talk to one more guy <laughs> yeah. on the street. If they know that it's not necessarily going to pay off, in the long run, then it's really hard to get them invested in the next NPC. So yeah, become, getting into that habit of making sure that you pay off even some of the simplest NPCs in, in a small way. You know, the little crying boy in town got his bike back or whatever, whatever the case may be. But going back to the act structures, I'm not sure I've ever heard it put so succinctly, the three act structure of laugh, cry cheer but that's that is so perfectly yeah um, i'm carving that into the wall i'm putting that on my dm screen <laughs> that's really good that's like something i can in my dm panic moments i can remember and just be like oh yeah what emotion am i trying to hit i love that go on though Trav. well but that is to say exactly that of it's something that i think is incredibly useful and a lot easier to remember than say uh you know jordan and i are big fans of We've got like an eight act structure that I often use that is it re requires an Excel spreadsheet to work out exactly how I want the story <laughs> to go. And that's fine for thinking in that kind of campaign scale when you can sit down and, you know, tap a pen against your forehead and really think your way through a, a campaign. But laugh, cry, cheer is something that I can stay on even within a, a session or like you said, it can just be extrapolated infinitely. Yeah, and sometimes it's fun if you play with this, um, as people get to know you, you can mix that up too, because people get to know that, you know, I'll usually have a really silly intro to a, um, a moment and getting to know everybody. And I like to do scenarios as the players get to know each other where laughter really breaks the ice so that that's really easy. But if my players know me really well, I could start with cry. Like I could mix that up. And, and they're all of a sudden into some super dramatic moment right out the gate. And, you know, maybe they're at the end of a battle and they're scouring the battlefield and it's just dead bodies. And, you know, there's people they knew there. And then you can throw them into that moment and then you have to give them the relief. So they're going to have to laugh after that. You know, and then can we get back into a format again where we can be on a pacing system where the emotions that the players are experiencing are changing 
because I think that's when they they're going to have a great fun time. Yeah, and it's easy to get into that as a DM of your your usual routine. So that's a, a good reminder to mix it up. But I think kind of moving on to like you have a lot of thoughts around scenes kind of take us through maybe uh, starting with the difference between the way you're thinking of acts and the way you're thinking of scenes when you're planning out, uh, say, a, a game of D&D. Yeah, I think of it really my sessions much like my scripts. And so I have an act. It's a series of scenes where there's a goal with a set of milestones through there. And those scenes could play out however the players decide those moments do, but they still are fitting into what needs to be accomplished by the end of the act. So by the end of this moment, I'm hoping that we've gotten to this point. I'm trying to hit a couple of emotional beats or information deliveries. And the scenes are the um, opportunities for the players to interact in each of the spaces. So I'm hoping that this scene takes place in you know, the dungeon but I don't know for sure that it will. So letting the players still make those choices that lead them somewhere, but I have a piece of information to deliver or breadcrumb clues that they're going to find in a space, but you're kind of working on the fly to make sure that this part's still going to happen or it's a scene between two players. And so if I know that today is a day where we're going to get some backstory information about this player, I anticipate that this other player is going to find that really interesting or particularly juicy or it messes with their stuff and so I know I need to set up a space for them to have that scene together and sometimes it's funny to be able to you know force them into a closet arguing about it and sometimes you know maybe they're yelling across the whole street at each other in the middle of a brawl but they they have an opportunity to have that scene between them so they're smaller a little bit more personal but they also have hopefully kind of a beginning middle and end because I think of that in such a storytelling visual way translating it from film interesting i see the power in that like taking two characters and kind of giving them a moment how do you get them there because i mean often the party's together people aren't always running away from each other so how do you like how do you give it that highlight on purpose some of it's through tools where you talk to your players individually we on ready to roll we use slack so i can send players messages so if one piece of information is revealed to somebody, I can send a message through the Slack that's like, reminder, this is connected to your backstory. Um, this is the same name that you heard when you had that letter that you received a while ago. Because they're going to be like, oh, I totally forgot about that. And that'll nudge them to maybe force them into the moment where they're like, I have a thing to say about that. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, they can act on it. Wonderful. Hmm. Yeah, but they also sometimes they just pick up, if they don't pick up on it, nudging them but if they do give them the chance first to try on their own right yeah i think that's really powerful in the sense that you know we often feel as as dms these like machiavellian puppet masters in the background that we can do this kind of stuff but for some reason when it comes to prompting players on maybe what's connected to their backstory or maybe what's a little bit more relevant we feel like maybe that's stealing from their you know, oh, I, I'm not going to give you any notes. I'm not going to remind you of any notes. You have to take all the notes for your session. I'm not going to feed you any information. I'm backing out. I never quite understood the that barrier of why we can't as DMs, since we're doing the rest of the, the pulling the strings. Why can't we just remind folks of, hey, by the way, this person was so-and-so without stealing their joy. Mm -hmm. I get that. Oh, that's a good expression. Oh my goodness. It, and sometimes it's unique to the players too. Some players really appreciate the nudge. Some players are not, are not as, as into it. And so you have to, you know, what works for each person, but I have a crew that's pretty dedicated to, you know, they really appreciate those. I have one player who refuses to take notes ever <laughs> and probably won't do it and check Slack, even if I tried. So there are them, you know, I'll often be a little bit more like, Hey buddy, that's that thing, that thing you said yeah. that you were into. But most of the time, it's nice to do it a little bit more subtly so that they have a chance for their, to figure their moment in organically through role play so that I have to talk a bit less in a moment where maybe the players can do it all through their own interactions as their character. Well, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you're still giving them so much control over how this is going to play out. And I think that's what you're alluding to, Travis, is just, we're worried as the DM that the players will think that's stealing all of their autonomy, but it's just giving them information. It's okay to do that. 
you mentioned think of pacing like volume. Can you extrapolate on that a little bit? Yeah, I think uh, pieces of music have act structure too, right? They have rising motion and they're leading you on their own journey. So music is a story just like our D&D sessions are stories and human beings want to go on a quest together and arrive at some destination where we all have an emotional connection to the experience. And I love classical music and I play French horn and I have for a long time since I was a kid and then in the university band. And I think that there's really something strong about thinking of your own DM style a little bit like you're on a musical journey and you can give your players the clues about the pace and the pace that you're trying to set or change by doing some of those things that we can take from music. So get really quiet. It'll draw people in. Speak in shorter sentences that listen. Then when you want to get really loud and if you want to talk a lot, you can give a lot of information and it's going to change the way the players are feeling and the stress level will start to go up and your sentences get longer and they run on and then you have a moment where suddenly you can give them release. And so I like to work on it. I'm not great, but I like using my voice like an instrument. And I think that that helps to draw the players back into the moment. They listen and they naturally, we all, when we listen to music, I think we lean in and we sway and it's just such a human experience. And so we're so trained by just what we listen to that you can use some of those tools when you're DMing if you need to especially change the pace of your game. That's a powerful tool that I don't think gets talked about in any tabletop role-playing stuff that I've seen. Like the power of our voice and our, yeah, our emotional rhythm that we're putting off. Wow. I'm sure that can be a barrier for a lot of DMs in that, you know, there are some DMs who don't kind of come at uh, D&D from a theatrical standpoint, but it is it is inherently kind of theatrical in the way that we're putting ourselves behind a screen and we're starting to, you know, just that that very act is somewhat theatrical. So I, I wonder if that's kind of a call to to myself as a DM and, and I think a lot of DMs everywhere of saying, okay, now we're going to lean in a little bit. And like you said, use your voice like an instrument, start conducting your games like a conductor like there, there's a lot of parallels I can see to to kind of that music of like, OK, now we've got the crescendo and now we've got a solo. I need you to take it away now. Um, you know, that kind of thing. It's uh, it, it is a very kind of performative musical experience now that I, I think about it. I love there's a, a a meme going around right now that is, do you want to get better at drawing sorcerers than just use conductors? Because they're so expressive. <laughs> There's so much emotion on their face and they have a wand. So, you know, that they're big. But I don't think that very many people feel like they are overshadowing the music by being theatrical themselves. And if you've had a conductor who is into the music, that just makes the experience as a player when I'm in the, the band playing for somebody who's really passionate at the front, I start to do that myself too. And then I, what the hope is, is that the experience for everybody else around you in that moment, that they are on that, that same invested journey with you. But I do feel like you have to be careful as a DM. It is about the players, obviously, making sure that you never make it too much about yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. You're not going to go full conductor mode <laughs> on them. But yeah, you're just making me think about the fact that, you know, more nervous DMs. And when I started, I was certainly in this camp. You know, I have the, I had the tendency to kind of wait for somebody else to be the energetic one rather than lead that. And it's certainly something to practice, but to be to be aware of how much an effect that has, I think is way more powerful than what I did was just sitting back, <laughs> hoping for the best and being <laughs> meek about it. <laughs> OK, uh, anybody do anything cool in this scene? <laughs> <laughs> And some of that is how, how you like to DM and what your table's into. Because I think if you have a lot of players who are shy and prefer to, you know, that they're working on, and if they want to, if they're wanting to be more engaged and they're working on it, they probably will feel intimidated by somebody who comes at it, 
you know, sometimes I come in real hot and spicy and I'm really like energy first and I'm a little wild and crazy. And I have had games with a couple of players who were really new and weren't very confident and they wanted to be there every, every session, but it took a really long time to pull them out of their shell. And that became, because I usually stand when I DM, because I'm alarms all over the place. And <laughs> I'm talking and I'm, uh, that became a, an opportunity for me to also sit back a little bit. The big problem there is you have to talk to the other players at the table, because as soon as you build someone a space, it's a vacuum. And other players who are naturally really uh, loud or passionate about their character will fill that void that you leave. But, you know, you're being clear that I'm leaving this space for somebody in particular. So, you know. Sometimes you have to separate that player out or kill everyone else for a little bit <laughs> and give them the chance to to move into that space and, and take ownership of, of their role play moment. Yeah. Oh, look at that. You're the last person that I'm targeting with this sleep spell. Everyone else is asleep. <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> I had a player suddenly step into a moment like that who had sat on the sidelines for so long. And I had probably one of my proudest moments of a player just like suddenly used spells she'd never used before, got herself out of this crazy jam. And in the end, they survived this dragon fight because of her. And she had been the the quiet sidelines, happy to just, you know, be the player who waits outside. Literally, she would have her character just wait outside the door. <laughs> <laughs> it's safe out here. Yeah, exactly. I've had those moments too, where that shyer person finally gets a chance. And I swear that's the most emotional moment I've ever seen at tables is when they get to do what they've been waiting to do, but everyone just talks so much. <laughs> I think that's great advice of just, you know, here's your here's your opportunity for a solo. Now run with it. And if if not, then we'll we'll get back and we'll we'll pull everyone back in and we'll carry on. Relating to the solos, I think I had a screenwriting instructor once tell me um that, you know, in the scripts that that she really enjoys uh she has a little a little rule that everybody gets a speech mm. and it's the same as that solo moment and so you're trying to find an opportunity for everybody to have a moment at some point in your campaign you also talk about keeping secrets in the way to uh, keep people hanging on the hook and keep people leaning in and, and keeping the pacing going you say keep secrets and leave trails let's talk a little bit about that yeah, it's maybe with my puzzle brain, it's sort of the way I think about the reveal of information is as a puzzle to solve. So I want to make sure that, I mean, every DM has to have all your ways out. You know that you need to leave. If you want them to so figure something out, you need way more clues or opportunities than, than the one or two that might lead them there. But they might miss that or misinterpret it or not go to the place where it could make sense for them to get that info and you can't squeeze it in anywhere else. So you need more breadcrumbs than the loaf was made of in order to actually get them there. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> but you also want to keep some things from them. Sometimes it's for your back pocket so you could pull it out later. It's also about the pacing so that you don't give all of the information away in the beginning. And they also give your players a chance to be smarter than you. Because sometimes they'll put together the clues and you'll be like, oh, dang, that's really good. That's so much better than what I had planned. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. And then, but now because I haven't revealed everything, I can adjust, change my plan, incorporate their stuff so they feel really smart, which they love. Then I can get going again on my crumbs. But they figured out something that was probably often better than I had planned. They're so smart and clever. Isn't that usually the way? <laughs> and then somehow... In some weird way, they get to infer it back onto you by saying, wow, you were two steps ahead of me. I can't believe I figured it out. I can't believe you planned for that. That's incredible. Like you you come across like some kind of fortune teller or seer in being able to see the path that they took when really you were just kind of incorporating what they had thrown out. It's why I love D&D more than screenwriting and doing traditional film or television work because this is collaborative storytelling we are all building this story together it's not the story i wrote on a piece of paper or in my extensive google sheets or if you're doing spreadsheets work all of those documents are living documents everything's going to change as soon as your players are loose in the world and they are writing the story with you 
and it's so fun and it, yeah in the end it's probably a way better than you would have done solo if you were just writing it as a novel well to me i like it no no i think you settled it i think that that was a hard stance and you were right to take it that <laughs> D is better than movies or tv hands down yep. because there's no way that anyone at the start of a campaign knows what's going to happen at the end of it it's it's so magical like at the end of each session talking about those big spreadsheets at the end of every session of any campaign that i've run i just sit down and say okay scratch all that that i thought maybe would happen and let's rewrite the rest from here <laughs> let's start from scratch i was giving some players some hags to fight and as they were figuring out what it was going to be um in my last one of my last campaigns it was pretty clear about halfway through that they were not going to try to kill them they were going to try to save them and it changed everything about what i had planned and so i was just in a quick like spend a couple moments to figure out how can I change right now in the moment so that that's still an option for them because I hadn't really thought about it and then over time having to adjust the plan along with them to run a story that that's the story they wanted they wanted to save them or some of them or try and it was on me as the dm to give them that as a choice and try to make make that even available even if it's really hard to do that is the story that they wanted to participate in and not just go to the end and kill a bunch of things and save the world. That's so cool that you have players that take those kind of options too, because I think that that's a really kind of great gauntlet to throw down to players as well, is think about trying to do the hard thing before trying to do the easy thing. And like when you lay out this scenario where players are thinking, can we save the hags? Can we do this? You have laugh cry and cheer built into that scenario of yeah we can save a couple of the hags but we we're not going to end up saving one and now we've got a little bit of a cry we've got a, a moment of levity after or before and now we get to cheer because we we managed to do it or the hags gave us some amazing boon or or something like that like that's really cool when players kind of see that opportunity in front of them and and take it yeah, and they're used to playing in my stories where I often have NPCs who give up when their hit points are really low. They don't want to die, which I think is completely reasonable. <laughs> Seems fair. <laughs> you know, and what's in it for them? So really thinking about, especially the NPCs that are sentient and, you know, have backstories and families and goals and dreams. And those NPCs... Maybe it's not worth it for them all the time. Sometimes they're literally willing to die for this cause. And a lot of times they're not because why would they? So they try to give up. And my players are pretty used to there being maybe something more going on. And they want to talk to them about it and find out what is going on for this NPC. They probably have information or they just have a really cool, interesting backstory, even if they're a total piece of shit. <laughs> like... <laughs> Let's, let's just ask these guys some questions. What's going on in your life, man? <laughs> Why are you such a jerk? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to you? Right? How do you approach ending sessions and like kind of these scenes? We're talking about acts. How do you wrap all of that up in a way that keeps players? Because I think this is something that plagues DMs a lot, which is how do we keep them hungry for the next session? How do we make sure that whatever social engagement is seems not as important as figuring out what the hell we're doing in the next session of D&D. Yeah, I love cliffhangers. They are my favorite tool. Something, again, that comes a lot from screenwriting. But I think when you have an act break, I had a good note from an instructor once to think of them as actual breaks. They're going to break your heart. So something really tragic that's going to cause all sorts of emotional moments for everybody. You're going to break your leg. This is the moment of the monster shows up. Everybody roll initiative. I'll see you next week. And then break the case. And that's the big clue drop. That is, you receive this, there's a bag of holding and you open it up and it's full of clues. I'll email you guys some of that information. But when you come back next week, we'll put them together and I'll literally bring pieces of paper for you. So the cliffhanger is always a promise. But you're going to go in one of these two directions. And either way, things are different now. 
that's awesome that's i think that just unlocks something for me the fact that like things will change you can't go back to the way things were at the start of the next session yeah i like that about pacing is change i have to promise my players that it won't be the same and those three also you know very much help sort out the jumble of cliffhangers that i think exist in my brain into three categories so thank you for that too (laughs) like that that kind of hits all the bases like leave them leave them just curious as to what their character is going to do next is super powerful with that break the case i love those moments those like oh the mystery we're gonna unravel it we just unraveled it but now what yeah that's my puzzle brain too i just love giving out those clues right at the end i think that really helps jordan and i with a lot of the stuff that we tend to struggle with from pacing and which uh or sorry which act structure is the best what to keep in mind when I'm panicking and sweating and don't know what to do next. I like those little <laughs> those little unlocks. And how to end a session. To maybe move along, we need to figure out the puzzle and the mystery of Roz and what she's working on. So we're going to hop over to the hero stage to do exactly that. This is the hero stage, where fantastic folk have a spotlight turned to them to tell the tales of their adventurous lives. Let's talk about Ready to Roll, which is one of the most impressive D&D endeavors I think I've ever seen, because what a beautiful mountain of work to put together what you have done and i guess to to shorten it i think ready to roll is one of those endeavors that every single player or dm has dreamed of at some point in their lives you know they they think god wouldn't this be cool if it were live action and you guys did it <laughs> that's oh my goodness we did <laughs> it's crazy and it it absolutely is i mean a dream and to have these friends who were starting a company and wanting to make online content knowing that I was a DM and we'd worked together in film before and I was finishing up a job I was working in post-production and they were starting up and they said come and be a DM and and we're gonna play this game and then we're going to actually pull scenes from it and reenact them with full makeup hair costumes set builds we're going to do it all like we all know how to do and we're all experts at we're going to film this you know we were like how how good can we do this and we said well let's find out and i at first didn't know that a reenacted scene would just fall into the gameplay because that's the idea behind the show we haven't pulled that off entirely we've just started releasing gameplay and now we're releasing what we call them as the vignettes these short clips out of the episode where it starts with the gameplay moment and then it just transitions into the high production value reenactment. And I love it. I can't believe how good it turned out. It's just such a joy. And it's like drunk history. Players are mouthing along in their character costumes and makeup to their own words. And then our fellow co-workers are all dressed up as the NPCs that are still mouthing along to my stupid words. (laughs) And I love it so much. And it's so lovely. When you see the first one that's out with our costume designer, uh, Ash, she plays Hammerlane, this dwarf wizard, and she's in all the makeup and huge amounts of prosthetics and this beautiful wig and the costume that she built for the character. She's wearing it. But then she turned all those moments where I flub something into like a little burp because the dwarf's been drinking and all these little character beats. <laughs> and they're so subtle, but so beautiful. It's funny what a, a joy it is to watch. And I just hope that the people who go on that journey with us feel the way that we do which is so proud and thrilled we love what you have done as well it's it's just it's brilliant like we've already said many times i cannot imagine how much work goes into that can you kind of walk us through like all of the stages what it takes to produce an episode just so that i think someone can get a really good sense of how 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 incredible this is because it's very hard for us to express how much like they're not skimping d 
dear listener, this is serious. This is like <laughs> above and beyond what you're picturing now from what you've heard so far. I promise you, it's more than that. Yeah. Even gameplay itself is c- cinematic. They are filmed on a set we built, which is set to feel like sort of a, a castle and with a big table also built by the team to play D&D on. And in the walls are all clues about the characters' backstories. So someone's banner, someone's shield, some uh, apple cores are sprinkled throughout because that happens in a scene at one point. And so all of these elements just for the gameplay and then the windows along the sides of this castle room that built to play in are actually glass and there's cameras on the other side. So, you know, like six or seven cameras with operators who would get very tired because you play D&D for a long time. <laughs> that that footage all goes to the editorial team. So the guy playing Seno, my partner, Matt, he is the editor. So putting together the footage from all of those cameras into one one hour episode of gameplay. The original goal for the show, which we couldn't quite achieve, but we're going to release what we can that we've already shot, was that an hour worth of this gameplay would have 15 minutes of reenactment sprinkled in throughout an hour. So for the first one, which is from episode five, where they meet Hammerlane, the dwarf leader of this town, there's a 20 minute section that was an example of what we were trying to do. But in order to create that, we built the set, which was Hammerlane's office and the hallway in front of it, all in the same warehouse space that we had built the original gameplay set. So the gameplay circle space is the same as Hammerlane's office. Oh, wow. And then we built the one hallway out. So when you see them, you can be like, oh, it's just, they've just changed the what's on the walls. But what's on the walls includes an owlbear painting completely from scratch done by one of our art team members. And they built most of the miniatures. And we have a in our props team, leather maps, like real leather maps that come out to the gameplay table. And some of those are hanging in the wall. They did paintings and they found like classical paintings, but then changed their skin color and their ears. So, you know, you can have lovely orcs on the walls or elves (laughs) and all of those elements. Some of them were rentals from the prop shops around town. Some of them were things we built. The books in Hammerlane's office are just fake covers (laughs) just to put up on all of her bookshelves. But that's just the set again with all of our camera crew and lighting. And then each of the players has a full functional costume. So we have one person on our costumes team who specializes in leather working, building all the leather pieces, Uh, someone else who can do metal work to actually have functional pieces. And lots of it's like cosplay style as well. So that, you know, it's light enough. Our paladin, for example, I think Bev's like (laughs) stretched out as tall as she can reach our tippy toes, 5'3". So giving her an outfit that worked for her, but it was also still pretty heavy and she's carrying around a sword and a set of javelins and her her tools and her shield and all of that started with design by the players so this is what i imagine my character is literally wearing most of the time and then the stuff that you don't see even so bev has a huge burn scar on her chest that you just never see in this season because it's we don't have that opportunity to ever see her without her mail on and she designed that and the makeup team built the prosthetics so she is wearing that burn to feel like that character the whole time and then yeah in makeup they have a whole team of people prosthetics ash is wearing as hammerlane a fake nose chin cheek pieces ears her hands have uh aging prosthetics and the wig just incredible and the Characters are wearing stuff to make them look completely fantastical. So we have a half orc in the party, and that was probably like a five hours of makeup application. That's incredible. To be able to create it, it's it's so wild. But then we go into post production too. So to finish the content, we have one guy doing sound, um, and eventually someone else from our PA team started working with him. So we could have somebody cleaning up the dialogue at the same time because we got a lot of crosstalk at our table uh it was all agreed ahead of time that we knew we were going to do this so occasionally i get notes from people that are like oh you shush your players a lot it's just not very cool i was like well we all talked ahead of time that we knew we would shoot reenactments and so trying to minimize how much we talk over each other yeah but you know when it's fun you can't help it you're having a good time we still wanted to make sure that dnd gameplay fun honest genuine gameplay was at the heart of this story so that had to come first But then everybody knows that, you know, you're talking over somebody about something 
anachronistic and modern. It's going to feel weird when you're all dressed up like elves and dwarves. <laughs> you you want to keep that to a minimum. <laughs> Fair enough. As far as the world and the, the setting that this time kind of takes place, and this was your own creation, what's unique about Altero? And uh, give us a, a quick pitch on, on what makes it so unique and cool. The really short version of that is that it is a high fantasy world, but with portals. So across Altero spherical world and mostly water and has magic and the portals link parts of Altero to each other but this is Altero not and there are portals that link Altero not and Altero prime and that's so that in the future Matt and I could run games that are more science fiction and those portals are extremely rare to the other world and they're controlled primarily by one country and they have a queen and she is attempting to use the science from the other world. And so she keeps it very proprietary to her. And they try not to share too much magic in the other direction either. So that, you know, someday they wouldn't be forced to surrender should somebody master all of their stuff and come through. So it's a fun way to have the potential to do other kinds of storytelling and maybe even other game mechanics on the other side. We've never traveled through a portal yet to Altero Prime because we're still trying to figure out between Matt and I, what system we'll use. But I would love to see some of my hilarious dwarf clerics stumble over into the other world and suddenly meet people who've traveled through space. Or meet your player's future characters that, you know, the player knows, the player knows who's, who this is, and now they have to play off <laughs> having never never met this person before. Yeah. Fun idea, though. I like how you can you can blend in as much of the other you know, science fiction or fantasy that you want. You can, <laughs> that's, that was clever. As your background in science changed the way that you approach games or the lore that you add, or um, like how has your science background influenced your d and I think it gives, having a science background gives you a really firm grasp of the importance of research. I mean, then you might throw a bunch of it out the window once you start playing with your players, but you have a lot to draw on. And so you can always find ways that make everything feel that much more real because it's based in a reality of knowledge and you've figured something out. And the example that I like to use is that if you go to a tavern and you order something on the menu, I've probably figured out the menu because I know what the biome they're in is. I know what kind of flora and fauna are outside around that city that people might be hunting or foraging because I figured that out based on Matt did the ocean currents and where the tectonic plates are and we've done the geology and we figured out oh there's mountains here the water's going this way here's what grows here and that becomes something that is different everywhere the players go because if they travel into a different area then as things change we've figured a little bit of that out and we've done the research to have a foundation that that really grounds even the most fantastic moments. Right on. That's really fun. I love that. I mean, that's some that's some deep world building that you're you're getting into. <laughs> the best part about playing with players on your own homebrew world is that they'll fill that out with you as you get to parts that are undiscovered by my current documents. You know, lots of parts of the world I haven't played in, so I don't know as much about it. And then as soon as a player picks that as their home base or where they'd like to travel to, then you have to be just ahead of them. For anybody who does world building, it's a little scary to let people into your homebrew space, but open yourself up to the possibility that they're going to write stuff better than you might. Yeah, it's going to be that much better for it regardless because it doesn't feel as homogenous because it's all coming from your own brain, but then you start mixing other people's ideas in there. So you've got all this experience, you've got all this knowledge about production and sciences, but what do you feel like you're learning right now for yourself to develop your own skills in games? What are you excited about right now? I am really excited to learn more about playing high-level games. So the challenges of high-level NPCs and high-level characters and how to create inspiring games at that level. Because I think the stakes need to be higher and they still they can't feel artificial, but you have to involve more people, more communities, more nations, maybe even. Because at that sort of a scale, 
which I haven't played it very much. I'm intimidated by the idea that in my world, there would be the gods would be involved. Maybe the players at high level would have access to spells that can literally change the fabric of reality. And that's really scary to me. <laughs> and how to do that and challenge them. I've been doing a bit of research just on you know, what that entails and then talking to other DMs who've run games that have you know, lasted many sessions at, at super high level and trying to get their input, input on how, how do you accomplish that when someone can just wish someone dead or alive? How do you do anything at this level and <laughs> not have it all fall apart instantly? I'm honestly a little confused by that myself because yeah, there's so many spells that just, like if you're trying to craft a story, one person can just <laughs> change everything with a single spell. And I, I get where you're coming from. If you've crafted that world over such a long period of time and one spell can erase it, <laughs> let's be careful, folks. Easy with those wish spells, please. Well, every DM warns another DM about the inclusion of something like a deck of many things. All of your players are walking decks of many things. Like they can change anything at any time. Yeah, I can see how that would be pretty anxiety inducing. So I think maybe we have uh, we have our next marching orders. Oh, I would love to hear some thoughts from an expert DM who's run a bunch of those games on how do you create a fulfilling, dynamic, high level campaign. One more question about your style. What enemy are you throwing in? What monster? What baddie? Oh, that is a good question. Uh, instead of like a monster, like a wizard or a sorcerer, but something that would be more inclined to have a conversation and make it pretty difficult for the players to just come at them with their weapons. You're telling me that you would put a puzzle master against the party. <laughs> I think I get... I've actually run a one shot before forcing players to fight like a, a version of me. <laughs> it was all like just unicorns and orcas in the moat and puzzles everywhere and having to like solve through this adventure to get to the end um, <laughs> and i'm sure they loved it <laughs> i have an expression at work where everyone teases me but i call it mandatory fun <laughs> it is literally our jobs to have fun right now <laughs> oh and what again going back to the top what a dream job Ooh, to see my character come alive with all those prosthetics and the team making it all come to life. That's that's amazing. And hats off to you and everyone involved in the show. You can check out Ready to Roll. It's out now. It's on it's on its 11th episode. You can find it on YouTube, youtube.com forward slash a filthy quest line. And don't worry, we'll have links to all of this stuff in the show notes. But yeah, you can check out that first vignette where they have that full scene. I watched it the other day. Very blown away. It's juicy. It's good. You must go and watch it. They have lots of other content on there too. Uh, one shots, animated monster videos. It's uh, you can you can get into quite a YouTube wormhole. Then there's also the uh, Filthy Lots Twitch channel, in which they stream plenty of other D and D and gaming content too. And seriously, this is Jordan talking. Please, please check this out. Do as much as you can because I'm going to because I want to see stuff like this in the world. Like this is a a game changer and I'm definitely underselling it. Yeah, I mean, if this is the template for I wish every, you know, Twitch, uh, you know, podcast, all of these wonderful games that are being played, they would be so much better if this kind of endeavor was something that that people more regularly took on but only the brave uh take on such a, a daunting endeavor um and i really uh, wish you and the entire team just the greatest success with this because it needs to happen more uh, i hope you become the template for what a, a tremendous DD show can be those are such kind words thank you so much and of course you can follow rods herself on twitter at squirrels of doom and on Twitch, where, Roz, you play Minecraft, Sims 4, Deep Rock Galactic. Is that the, that the headlines? Mm-hmm. Sometimes a little shooting some zombies and back for blood. Nice. <laughs> good, good, good. Zombies gotta die. 
That's at uh, twitch.tv forward slash rue underscore zilla. Thanks to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects you heard in this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Reddit. You can join an awesome community of players and DMs trading tips and swapping advice by joining our Discord. Thanks for Thanks. listening. Thanks for, for listening. watching. <laughs> play, for listening. Play oh. great games. <laughs> play great games. I play great games. That's awesome. <laughs> We're leaving that. Perfect. Yeah, that's great. <laughs>